Hola, amiga. I believe the only way to create a life of your dreams is by taking massive action that makes shit happen. Basically, amiga, handle your shit. Yes, I said that. Handle your shit. Stop playing small and start breaking down cultural limitations, gain back your feminine power, and become the unapologetic and unstoppable Latina you were destined to be. This show is meant to inspire, motivate, and awaken your soul's potential. You will learn from business professionals, successful entrepreneurs, and creatives that will teach you mental corrections, insider tips, success strategies, and of course, a dose of personal development. I am your host, Jackie Tapia, lawyer, transformational life coach, and entrepreneur. I am also a wife and mom to a little badass Latina. I'm obsessed with changing the Latina's mindset and breaking down cultural barriers so that you can live your best life and step into your true power and start living a life of abundance in all ways and always. Join me for inspiring conversations with thought leaders and learn how to handle your shit. ¿Estás lista? Vámonos. Hello, hello, amigas, and welcome back to Amiga Handle Your Shit podcast. How exciting to have this marvelous human being here with me. Her name is Maria Mastro de Casa. I love saying her last name. It's so gorgeous. And she's a beautiful human being out and inside. And I wanted to tell you a little bit about her. She's a former Wall Street broker. She's an international speaker, author, and self-advocacy coach. Maria's lifelong commitment is that all women feel safe and valued in school, the workplace, and the home. With 20 years of philanthropy experience, Maria is the founding member of the Jersey Shore Dream Center, a donor for Common Grounds Nonprofit, and a board member for the Guild of Ocean Medical Center. She has a beautiful, beautiful story. Lots of tragedies within that, but more importantly, a lot of resilience. And she wrote this amazing book called you, You'll Never, The Journey to What is Possible Through Self-Advocacy. And I'm excited for us to get into it and have this beautiful conversation. We have a lot to unpack, and I'm excited to have her here. So without further ado, this is Maria Mastro de Casa. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Amiga Handle Your Shit podcast, Maria. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Jackie. I'm just so excited to get started and, you know, to answer any questions that you may have. This is an honor to be here. So thank you. Oh, I love, I love, I love, I love this. So Maria is not from California, which a lot of my guests are. So tell us, where are you from? (laughs) So I am a native New Yorker. Born in Brooklyn, New York, and then moved to Manhattan and worked in Manhattan for years. And then I moved outside of the city into New Jersey to raise my family. Uh, and that's where I am currently. Nice, nice. So tell us a little bit about your childhood, because I think it's super important for Amigas to know exactly where you came from, because a lot of it 
we hear, we see, we read through your book. And we want you to know, amigas out there who are listening to this podcast, she wrote this amazing book called You'll Never, The Journey to What is Possible Through Self-Advocacy. And so it's important for us to dig deep into her childhood because a lot of that is written in here in this book. And so, Maria, tell us, please. So it's, it's funny, you know, when you go back, a lot of times when you have something traumatic, you remember it. So at age four and a half, you know, my dad and my mom, they're like, come on, let's go for a ride. You want to get ice cream. So I'm so excited. I'm a little kid. I'm sure if you love ice cream, you can think of your favorite flavor. And I run to the car and we get in the car and I think, oh my goodness. And I'm like, wait a second, why aren't we going where the ice cream store is? And we're driving and, you know, as a kid, you're thinking, are we there yet? But I grew up as a young child being basically, they said, you know, children should be seen and not heard. So I don't ask any questions. We get to this brick building and, oh my gosh, it doesn't look like or smell like when we go in a ice cream store. And fast forward, this woman comes towards me. She's in a nurse's outfit. I fight with my, don't want to get changed. And this nurse drags me away. And all I know is I wake up and I can't speak. And I don't know why. And I don't have a voice. (laughs) And I find out that they're like, well, your tonsils were taken out. So there was no transparency. And I think my parents didn't want to maybe upset me or get me nervous. So the lack of transparency as a child made me not trust the people I look up to to protect me. And they might have thought it was a great idea. But for me, truth is so, so important. And children know when something is up. So transparency creates trust. And that happens throughout my life. And so later on, they say, let's take a ride. And we end up where, oh, you're going to visit your cousins. And they purchased a house in New Jersey. And (laughs) Oh, hold off. Hold off. Oh, my goodness. So the first lie was the tonsils and then the second lie is you're completely like out of your little hood your little vortex your little home into a different place yes and as a child I was extremely observant and we'll talk later because you know I have some learning disabilities but I'm very very good at other things and I recognized so I saw clothes being moved I saw things I was asking questions I'm very curious and nothing's being said. And then I say goodbye to my grandmother. And I did see my cousins. They lived in New Jersey. And I end up in this home. And I never got to say goodbye to my cousins, my friends, anyone. I was now about seven or eight. I'm going into the third grade. I get put in private school. And that's where I refer to in my book, it is the first time I learn at age eight, I'm in the third grade. And I realized I'm advocating for myself because the nun was angry at me. She asked me to stand up in front of the class. And as I stand there and I fix my skirt and I'm so, so nervous because in public school, I was never asked to come up and speak, to read. And as I had difficulty, the children are laughing. And she is angry at me because I'm struggling. Right. And she finally stopped the pain 
And then she scolded me some more and wrote a note home to my mother as if I was like this horrible child. And she's like, don't your parents know that you can't read and all of that. And it, it started this self-esteem issue for me because yeah. I yeah. didn't feel like I was enough. And then I remember telling my father, she then would blame it on my hair. As you could see, I have very long hair. I always did. And she said, well, maybe it's because you can't see. You need to cut your hair. And I refused. And that would make her angry. And she said, if you don't get that hair out of your eyes, I'm going to cut it. And I told my dad, and he said, no one will ever cut your hair. Don't worry. And then he moved me to another school. So at this time, the nun is getting angry with you. The kids are making fun of you. Yes. But all you had no idea that you ha- you were dyslexic. No. no. Okay. And did that happen? Like you finally do get that diagnosis, but it's not like from reading your book, it's not like soon thereafter. It was like really a long time, right? I didn't find out until I was 18. When I was 18, I began to work with the wolves of Wall Street. I went into New York. I told my parent, my mother and my sister, I'm going to get a job in New York. And they laughed at me and they said, you'll never, because of the struggles I had in school, I ended up leaving school because of some of the difficulties with my father's wife. I ended up coming back home to Brooklyn. I left New Jersey, go back to Brooklyn. And my mother says, you got to get a job. So instead of staying working in Brooklyn, which I had a little job, I decided to take this token like that's like a Metro card and I'm going to go into Manhattan and they tell me I won't be able to get a job because I don't have a high school diploma. And I'm thinking, all right, well then I guess I'll be back in Brooklyn. And I <laughs> get a job. I get a job at a recruiter, a headhunter, a, you know, that helps people get jobs and I'm loving it. I'm doing great. It's commission only. And then it starts to slow down and I see this job for a trainee position on the trading floor of the government market. And I'm so excited. I tell my coworker, can you send me on this interview? I go home, I tell my mother and my sister, and Maria, that'll never happen. Never. (laughs) And I go in and I bring my resume and I'm so nervous and I'm afraid and I do it anyway. I'm scared and I walk in with the owner of the company and it's like walking into Gordon Gecko's office. Oh my God. (gasps) And I hand him my resume and he says, Maria Mastro de Casa, you're hired. (laughs) I'm making more than most women. I put the percentage in in my book. I make more than most women. I'm waking at the age of 18 with no high school diploma. I'm making at least four or five thousand dollars more than than my mom. I'm making to walk in the door with no experience at the age of 18 in the 80s, they offer me $19,000, a $6,000 bonus, all benefits. And I knew nothing. They were going to train me. Wow. And that's when I, I decided, when I looked around, I was way out of my league with these wolves on the trading floor. Yeah. They were Ivy Leaguers. And I said, I have to get a tutor. And I went from Brooklyn all the way uptown Manhattan, got done with the tutor. I went to her home, sat at her kitchen table, and then I would take the train back to downtown and go to work. Uh, Not every day. And she said, Maria, I know why you're having difficulty. 
And I was like, why? I mean, I didn't know from when I'm in the third grade. Now I'm 18 years old. I was eight, 10 years. And she said, you're dyslexic. And I said, dyslexic? Sounds like some sort of disease or something. And she said, you're going to be fine. And I said, really? And she said, if you do this, this, and this. And then I took non-credit courses at NYU. I started to get all this knowledge because I was smart. It just took me more time than most people. Right, right, right. I think back in the 80s, I know, remember, because I also grew up in the 80s. I remember myself, because I also have a disability. I remember, like, I would take slower than other kids, but because I was really smart, I would get A's. But I was the last one to finish the exam. And so later, like, literally, like, when I turned maybe about in my 20s, that they determined that I have multiple sclerosis, which then that in itself damages the myelin sheath. And, you know, the processing isn't as fast. It really uh, tears away from the cognitive skills. So it's all these things that happened in the 80s that, can you imagine if had you known? Had I known? Would have been a I lot think different. The self-esteem issue is the biggest. And I'm saying to you before we got on here, it's that yeah. this book, This is Dick's Dyslexia, which by Kate Griggs and Richard Branson did the forward. And we talk about, and now LinkedIn made it a skill set, dyslexic thinking, because when you're not really good in one area, you excel in another. And that's how I excelled on the trading floor. So I, although I was told I would never, and it's, and I want to say this on this on this podcast, that's Amiga's Handle Your Shit. So when a that's man right. tells you, you will never, it's a man's world, they told me, you will never be a broker. You will never be a broker here. You will never be a broker. And at the age of 26, I was the only female in my department of 13 men. And I became the number one broker in my department, making six figures at the age of 26, which, nice. today, which today would be about a half a million dollars a year. So oh, it's possible and it is necessary to shut off those voices around you and in your head that tell you you'll never, because I am here to say that you, you can, you will. I did it. Yeah. Yes, I love that. I mean... Here you're working with the top Ivy Leaguers, like masculine energy to a whole different level, right? I mean, it's like a toxic masculine energy. And so I know from reading your book, there were certain situations that were very harassing. Can you share a little bit about that? Yes. Well, I think the first one, which, you know, was, you'll never be a broker here. They said, it's a man's world. Lucky you were invited. And they did say to me, you'll never get ahead unless you give it. And I was 18, Catholic girl from Brooklyn, you know, family. I'm being honest. It really took me a week or so to figure it out. And then I said, well, what about her and her? And also they would throw pencils on the floor. Some of the guys would throw pencils on the floor to see if you would bend down. And I would bend down, but the way I was taught like a lady is if you were in the castle of, you know, the queen in England, how you would curtsy, how you would bend down. So I, they got nervous when I started bending down, but I did it like a lady. And I went, here you go. And no one really ever touched me, but then 
as I say in my book, they would fling quarters and half dollars and ask if that represented a certain part of my body. And then I was harassed by a boss who was in the top department, at, requested me to work in his department. And it was the long bond department. And he kind of looked like a Leonardo DiCaprio. And, you know, his watch was like 25 grand and his suits were amazing. And he was a very nice looking man, but I had no interest. The man was married. He had a girlfriend and and one night he insisted I go out with them. And I was the only woman and he made advances towards me and touched me and I just resisted. But uh, had I known what I know now, you got to remember I was 20 or around there and it's very, very difficult. And I grew up, you know, you can't blame a guy for trying. And so I would just laugh and take his hand off my leg and take his hand and uh, didn't think anything of it. I thought, you know, you just say no. And the next day he was so angry because I chose my values over his, over his advances. He wanted me fired. And they asked one of the men that were out that night to have me leave the company, leave the building. And I was confused. I didn't understand. And it was like getting hit in the stomach. And so before I pushed the the button for the elevator to go down, I remembered Vinny, Vinny who hired me, Vinny who owned this company that was one of the top companies on Wall Street. They made more money in a day than the New York Stock Exchange. And so I asked, yes, it was the big five article in the New York Times about it. And I asked his secretary if I could speak with him. And not everyone does this. So I don't know what gave me the courage to do it. I asked to speak with him. I asked to tell my side of the story. He allowed me in and he said he heard what happened. And I told my side of the story and he believed me. I think he was frightened maybe that I would sue. I don't know. That wasn't my thought. My thought was I could be blackballed. Or from the industry, I could, they could have said I was insubordinate, which happened down the line for me. And he allowed me to keep my job, but it wasn't in that high position. It was in another department doing the same thing, but in a a different department, government agencies. Wow. And when this was happening, did you ever talk to someone other than going to Vinny and letting him know what happened? It happened so quickly, and that's why I can see there was no Me Too movement back then. I can see why women just really, first of all, you're shocked. You're not sure. And will anyone believe you? And do you have a family that you have to raise? Are you a single mom? What are the circumstances? So let's not judge other women when they don't come forward or if they finally do. So for me, there was no one to talk to. There wasn't an HR department. I truly believe, and I do talk to HR departments, sh- they should be separate. They should not be in the same building or they shouldn't be hanging out with the executives. So I didn't have an HR department and I had no one to talk to. It was happening so quickly. If I made the wrong move at that moment, they would have just said, well, she didn't show up. I don't know what they would have said. Yeah. Oh my God. So then instead of trying to ameliorate the situation with the other guy, uh, they just ship you out to a different department. Like, yes. Yes. Like, oh my God. And how did that make you feel? Well, I think it was best because 
later on, you know, something happened to me and that boss said it's her or, or me because he was inappropriate again, not in a sexual harassment, but in a female, you know, he was against females. He didn't like females. And he said things that were inappropriate to me. And I was the number one broker in his department. He resented it. And he was an Ivy leaguer and he was my boss. And I had five accounts and two of them were in the top five every month. So I beat him every single month from day one when I started. Oh yeah. He, I'm sure he was like, how can, how dare she, how dare she, you know, beat me in all these things. She didn't even finish high school. Like I could just imagine. Well, he didn't know. They didn't know I didn't finish oh, no. high school. They oh. didn't. No, I have to say, no, I did. I didn't think I could get a job if I said I didn't finish high school. So I did have, you know, they just asked what high school you went to. And I just put a high school there, but no, (laughs) no one checks back then. And I did what I had to do. I mean, I'm not someone who's a liar. I embellished the truth. Like they didn't say, do you have a degree? It's like in court once someone said, well, you say you went to NYU. And I said, well, I did go to NYU. I took non-credit courses. No one asked me if I had a degree. If they asked, I would tell the truth. Right. When the judge said, what grade did you finish? I said, I'm embarrassed to say, but it was the ninth grade. Yeah. And so the more you tell your truth, the less shame you feel. Because Mm -hmm. let me tell you, I was felt a lot of shame, a lot of shame in being sexually harassed, what brought that on? I wasn't making advances. You think it's your fault. What did I do? And I didn't do anything. I remember what I was wearing. I was wearing a lilac pantsuit and a turtleneck. I, it was like spring and kind of cold, but it was this lilac thing and I wasn't wearing anything. And even if I was, no one deserves, if they say no, it should be no. It should be no. It should be no. There shouldn't be any confusion. N-O is no in Spanish, no in English. No. (laughs) Internationally. (laughs) International, right? It's a no. Okay, so here you experience all this harassment at work, but I know from your book that there's at-home harassment. There's a different kind of domestic situation, if you will. And I'd like for us to talk about that. I know that there's been domestic violence and here this is happening at work and then you come home and there's a different picture, a different life. Yes. So it's a different dynamic because here I am at work and I am the number one broker in my department and I do have all these harassment situations and I handle them very well. I think I handled them very well. I handled them head on. I spoke my truth. And no matter how it turned out, I spoke my truth. And that's the key thing is if you're going to hold it in and you're going to stay silent, will you be able to live with that? Will you regret it? So I leave Wall Street because I want to start a family. I meet a man who is chasing me he's not making a lot of money and I see something in him and I share with him, well, I can help you create that. You know, I did it for myself. I could do it for you. And the more money I help him make and the greater his career comes, I mean, he goes from 30,000 to three quarters of a million dollars. So he becomes this like giant in his company, the number one salesman in his company. Um, And he becomes like 
Godzilla, like he's this monster and he tears me down and he no longer wants me to basically be his partner because now he got where he wants to go. So he kind of pushes me to the side and then he kind of wants to dim my light. And although I keep trying to make it shine, I get punished for shining. So he gets violent and the physical abuse, although it wasn't often, wasn't as traumatic as the verbal abuse because I wasn't used to verbal abuse a little bit from my father's wife. She would be negative. She's the first person I heard say that I would never amount to anything, but it wasn't on a daily basis. I wasn't really in her presence that much. So the verbal abuse really affected my way I felt about myself. I felt very ugly even after my divorce. If someone would compliment me, male or female, although I'd receive it better from a female, I didn't believe that I was attractive at all. It really messed me up. It took a long time. And so it cost me, it took three years and $300,000 for my freedom. Mm. And during that time, I chose to heal. I chose to be still. I put lessons in my book that I feel could support other women in those situations because I didn't want to numb the pain. I didn't want to go out and party. I didn't want to go out. I do all these things when I'm happy. I I, I like to celebrate, like to have, you know, uh, champagne and wonderful meals. And I love to shop. I'm a fashionista. I didn't do any of that. I stayed in, took care of my children and myself. And really a lot of self-help books because I wouldn't have drawn in the right person in my life. And I felt like I could have spiraled down had I met someone and was rejected. I just, for my well-being, it was best to be still and heal from the trauma that still I have. There are triggers. Right. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I think uh it's a daily practice. Yes. It's a daily practice. And I'm sure you're further away from that energy. But yes. still, you know, you get there's certain situations that happens and they're like, oh my God, okay, that's uncomfortable. That triggered something. Okay, we got to go back and dig in. Okay, so why did that happen? You go through the internal work again. Yes. So my children and I, we do have to stop and breathe sometime if we go out and there's a large group of people and we need to sit in a restaurant because no matter where we would sit, he would make us get up and sit somewhere else. And it just caused this anxiety that no matter what we did was going to be the wrong thing. And then he'd have the the hostess move us. And it was just such a stressful situation. And then over time, you know, I got over it and Still, to on occasions, my children will mention it, or I'll say it, you know, that, or they'll notice it. Like, we like, where, where do we sit? <laughs> it just yeah. happens. And, and, it, and I don't tell anyone else, but I hesitate and I know inside, and then I just take a breath and, you know, and I figure it out. Yeah. You know, and I like what you're saying is like you, you guys do steps, you take steps in order to either calm your nervous system, not really 
get sad or depressed or anxious, now you know what to do. And I, I love what you've been doing in your book because in every chapter, you give us tips, some hacks, some recommendations for certain situations like in domestic violence, workplace harassment. And now that you're telling me about your ex having them move from place to place to place in the restaurant, for harassment purposes. I mean, that is incredible that you provide tips here, how to break away from something like that. Yes. And you you also talk about post-traumatic stress disorder, which is yeah. huge. So what kinds of things have you been doing to heal yourself? I know that journaling for me is very, very healing, especially as you progress and you get better. And if you slip which recently I had a situation and I went back and looked at my journal and I looked at the date and then I've been still, I've been really doing a lot of meditating and praying and I asked for guidance and then something came up. Like I had written a note and for me being dyslexic, it takes a lot of editing you know, so I, I'll write something and then I have to rewrite. And for whatever reason, this paper was still there. And I looked at it and I looked at the date of that thing. And I looked at this from a couple of years ago and I go, wow, thank you. It all makes sense because what I originally had intuition about was what was really true. And so when you journal, you can go back and you could say, well, where did this pattern happen? And I wonder if it happened before, how can I fix it? And so for me, the smartest thing that I can do is drink water. (laughs) I like bubbles. I like San Pellegrino. I like flat water, but I I drink a lot of water. I stay in and I take care of my health because when I start getting physically fit, like a athlete, I start with that first and it changes my mindset. It gives me confidence. It makes me feel better. I start to look better and it just builds me up from the inside out. And I do a lot of praying. So I really do feel that if you ask for guidance, you need to be quiet and listen. Mm, I love that. If we ask for I ask for guidance, you have to be quiet and listen. And I think that is so important. I find that when I meditate, I'm constantly asking my angels, the divine, and I'm like, okay, show me where I need to go next. Show me. And if it's not the right place where I am going, divert my pathway. Yes. Just, you know, divert it. Yes. I love that because it needs to be his will, his timing. And we want everything now because we don't want to feel uncomfortable, but it's in that uncomfortableness. It's in that pressure because, you know, if this podcast is going to be viewed, so people might look and go, oh, well, what does she know? Or she's like, looks all put together. I've been in the fetal position. I've been a mess. I was in duress. I've been attacked. And I couldn't think clearly. So that's when you really can't make decisions. You really need to surround yourself with just a few people. Don't be telling everybody your business because they're going to get tired of hearing the same story. So it's really good to journal, really good to find one or two people that have maybe been through your situation or read my book. (laughs) And And you will get through it. It's hard. I've been through, you know, you can lose a job, lose a loved one, lose a relationship and 
what are you going to do in those times? So when you take that time for yourself. Yes, I love that. I love everything that you say. I know that amigas out there who are listening to this podcast will resonate with so much of the messaging that you're providing here today. I really encourage everyone to buy her book. It's We can find it at Amazon, right? Yes, Amazon. You can find it on Amazon. And then I also have the self-advocacy empowerment journal based on the book and that both books you could get off of my website, which is my name, mariamastrodacasa.com. And, you know, if you order it through there, I'd be happy yes. to sign it before I Well, it. we will definitely put that in the show notes because I think it's such an amazing, powerful journey that you've been on and your tips and recommendations, every chapter, I'm like, oh my God, this is beautiful. So amigas, I really, truly encourage you to purchase this book and amiga Maria. I always ask my guests that before they leave, if they could give me their one or two tips on how an amiga can handle her shit. Because girl, you've been doing it. You've been doing it since you were a kid and you continue to just flourish right now. I feel that you get to know your worth and speak your truth. Speak your truth. and surround yourself with the right people and it doesn't have to be a lot. Make sure the people you call your friends are your friends. Yes. Very important. That really does. Self-advocacy is our superpower and how you can advocate for yourself is by using your voice. Oh my God. Self-advocacy is our superpower. It is our Oh, I love that. I love that. Well, thank you so much, Maria, for being here on Amiga Handle Your Shit podcast. Uh, anytime. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Amiga Handle Your Shit podcast. If anything resonates with you today, please share it with your friends and subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcast player. Don't forget to share it on Instagram, Facebook, and other social media platforms. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback for us, you can reach me directly at www.amigahandleyourshit.com. Thank you so much for listening. Gracias y hasta la próxima.